0: Welcome to this bonus episode of the EMJ podcast. My name is Dr. Hannah Moyer, Senior Medical Writer and Moderator for EMJ. Today, we are thrilled to be bringing you a fascinating discussion between three renowned respiratory experts who explore the topic of rare lung diseases and provide valuable insights on the current medical recommendations as well as the key unmet needs discussed at the European Respiratory Society ERS Congress 2023. This podcast has been sponsored by CSL Behring. Joining us today, we have Professor Marlies Wiesenbeck, a pulmonary physician and professor at the Erasmus University Medical Centre in Rotterdam in the Netherlands, Professor Visenbeck is chair of the Multidisciplinary Interstitial Lung Disease Centre and her research interests include patient-centred outcome measures in ILD, e-health and new therapies in idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis and sarcoidosis. We are also joined by Professor Gerry McElvaney. Professor of Medicine, Head of the School of Medicine and Director of the Cystic Fibrosis Unit in the Respiratory Research Division at Beaumont Hospital Dublin at the Royal College of Surgeons in Ireland, University of Medicine and Health Sciences in Dublin, Ireland. Professor McIlvaney is an expert in translational research with a specific interest in cystic fibrosis and alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency. Also joining us, we have Professor Luca Rakeldi, Professor of Respiratory Diseases, Director of the Graduate School and Director of the Department of Cardiovascular and Pulmonary Sciences at the Agostino Gemelli Hospital at the Catholic University of the Sacred Heart in Rome, Italy. Professor Rakeldi is a leading expert in idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, including the drafting of the international guidelines on the diagnosis and treatment of idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis and the classification of idiopathic interstitial pneumonia. In this section, the panel considers the expert insights of Professor Wiesenbeck concerning the challenges of predicting the disease course and prognosis of patients with idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, the conversation reflects on current knowledge, real-world practices, treatment options and tools available to healthcare professionals. So to begin, let's hand over to Professor Rickeldi.
1: Hello everyone, uh, I'm Luca Rickeldi and I'm, I'm joining the, today the, my colleagues Melise Wiesenberg and, and, and Jerry McIlveni from Ireland in this interesting conversation that we have about uh, the shape in the future in rare line disease from imaging to patient management with a particular focus on patients with uh, deficiency of alpha-1-antitrypsin. Now, we get this first section in which myself and Jerry will ask questions and converse with Marlies, that, as you know, is in Erasmus uh, in Rotterdam. She's an expert in interstitial lung disease. And uh, we will uh, focus Marlies on a very difficult topic, I guess, which is how to predict the disease course and the prognosis of patients with idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. So. Uh, what, what what do you think of this as a general problem? Are we there? Do we have enough tools? Do we have enough knowledge? Do we have enough data to really predict the disease in each single patient affected by this devastating disease?
2: I think um, what you bring up is is a very important question especially in each individual patient we have lots of models where we can predict on a group a risk of mortality we have like the gap score age gender physiology and that gives a risk for um, mortality we have ct scans we have biomarker panels that are all Predictive of mortality, but we know that in clinic for the individual patient, it remains very challenging because some patients have periods of relative stabilities, others have exacerbations, and to really predict that um, on an individual case basis is really a challenge.
1: Jerry, do you have any question for? Us? No, I think
2: that's a really interesting point, Marlies. And so, when do you, you use systemic corticosteroids? in ipf and how long do you leave people on them for to be completely honest um i think um, we don't use um systemic steroids anymore in ipf in idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis because previous studies have shown that if you use that as a treatment for the ipf patients actually do worse so we've left that and we use them now more for out inflammatory diseases that drive fibrosis we sometimes try them but in ipf there is no role anymore in the treatment uh, with uh, systemic corticosteroids. So I think it's an important question that you bring up there.
1: But Liz, that's an important question, but we use high-dose corticosteroids for acute exacerbation of IPFs. Now, now why is that? And how, what should we do to reduce the risk of acute exacerbation? And how do you treat the patients presenting with that, the very dangerous and with high mortality event?
2: Yeah, and I think that we are le- using less and less uh, steroids, actually, for the acute exacerbations in the pure IPF patients. There have been some retrospective data that also in acute exacerbations, use of corticosteroids in IPF may be associated with worse outcomes. There's been a French trial looking at cyclophosphamide on top of steroids for acute exacerbations on IPF, showing that those patients that got cyclophosphamide did worse. And there is currently a trial going on to actually prospectively research this. So I think we have to be critical on what we're doing and whether we are not harming patients. Um, I, we occasionally do it, especially if patients have an acute onset. There's a lot of ground glass. We have the idea that we're very early. There is some inflammation playing a part. That then we sometimes do it. But I think if you have a pure UIP pattern with some consolidations, I'm not so sure whether we do right in giving high doses steroids, and at least we've become much more conservative with this in our clinic. I don't know how that is in your clinic, Luca.
1: That's exactly the same, at least. This is one of the unmet medical needs, but you know how difficult it is to do almost nothing in a patient with an acute exacerbation, but I totally agree with you. To sit
2: on your hands is the worst yes. as a doctor. Very, very bad. Very
1: bad. But, but
2: obviously you may give them oxygen, so when would you recommend starting Acute oxygen or long-term oxygen therapy, Marlies, in people with uh, pulmonary fibrosis? This is another era uh, or field where we need more evidence. We have one uh, good study on patients that desaturated on exercise um, exercise. The Mbox trial, and it showed that patients who desaturated on exercise below a level of 88% of saturation actually could do more if they used oxygen and had a better quality of life. But that's the only randomized controlled trial we have. Nevertheless, the ATS guidelines on chronic oxygen use um, now also include um, ILD, and they recommend to use it if the desaturation is below 88%, either on exercise or at risk. How long would you use it at rest, or how long would you advise using it at rest for? There is a recommendation that says 15 hours, but I, that is based on absolutely no evidence. So I think um, what plays a role there is also patient comfort, patient preferences. Luca, do you have a different practice?
1: And It's very different from patient to patient. And on, on this same uh, uh, point that Jerry pointed out, which is a very important point that patients usually ask, what do you tell your patient if the, when they ask you if they can fly on a, a long-haul uh, journey on an airplane or if they can go enjoying skiing in the mountains? What, what do you tell them?
2: First of all, that you have to enjoy life to the max as long as you can. So you should definitely consider those trips. Um, but I think you have to be realistic and be prepared. Um, you have to realize that if you go on heights or in planes that there will be less oxygen. So your oxygen need will increase. So what we do here is anyone who has on sea level with us and saturation over 93, we think it's it's fit to fly. But under that, we do a fit to fly test where we actually see how much oxygen they would need and if it would be feasible to have a long haul flight. Um, but patients should discuss this timely with their doctors before their trips. Yeah. On another point then, Marlise, what, what are your thoughts on pulmonary rehab for for people with ipf and where should it be where should it take place um i think pulmonary rehab definitely has a role though there is contrasting evidence the short-term benefits are usually good patients can walk further have an increased quality of life can cope with their disease better but the problem is often after they stop these programs that these effects wean out So that is something that we have to think better of on how to do that, for instance, with virtual coaching to continue afterwards. But I do recommend it uh, to the majority of patients where you have to think in patients with more advanced disease, what are the benefits of such a program against the burden that it poses on the patient. So again, here, very tailored per patient.
1: Malaysian, you spoke about, you discussed briefly about the, the stage of disease. So, very often we see patients in the late stage of the disease, unfortunately, we have not seen them before. Now, one option, still one option, since we do not have still effective treatment that will stop or revert the disease, uh, is still lung transplantation. So, when and if you start discussing lung transplantation with your patient, which patients? Every patient? All of them? Selection of them?
2: No, I I think um, it's good to realize that probably transplant is only an option for a small minority of patients, probably fifteen twenty percent of patients, because the rest of the body has to be in top condition. So no renal failure, no cardiac problems. So that leaves in this elderly population, unfortunately, a large group out. The criteria for what a center accepts differ from country to country. So the best to do is discuss that with a transplant expert. And I would do that discussing that in anyone under 70 who seems in a rather a good condition with no major organ failure and who has a lung function that is impaired, let's say an FEC under 80 and a DLCO around 40% or you see a clear decline. There is a whole list of criteria published two years ago by the um, uh, Heart and Long uh, International Association for the Heart and Long Transplant. So you can look up the exact criteria there on one to discuss, but rather discuss it on time than be too late.
1: That's a clear message. Thank you very much, Marlies. Thank you. Thank you.
0: Welcome. Well, that concludes today's podcast discussion. Our thanks go to our experts, Professor Marlies Visenbeck, Professor Gerry McElvaney and Professor Luca Rickeldi for joining us today and sharing their insights considering the current medical recommendations and unmet needs in the field of rare lung diseases. If you enjoyed this episode of the EMJ podcast, please do not forget to subscribe through your preferred podcast platform or by visiting emjreviews.com, where we release a new episode every Friday, as well as plenty of bonus episodes just like this one. These, alongside an informative symposium review article entitled Shaping the Future in Rare Lung Diseases from Imaging to Patient Management, can also be accessed at emjreviews.com. Until next time, take care and goodbye for now.